You're listening to The 66. I'm Andrew Kingsley, and Drew Kaiser is with me. In this podcast, we read the Bible, and we think about it, and we apply it to our lives today. And today, we are going to get into our second episode on Paul's letter to the Philippians. And last week, we had a lot of good uh, things to talk about from the very first 11 verses of the letter. We covered a lot of the background. We covered a lot of the city of Philippi, the people that live there, the man that wrote the letter, all these different things. So for more info on that, you can go back and listen to our first episode on Philippians. But today we want to get in at verse 12 and go through to verse um, 18. Well, here to start with, we're going to end up going through the rest of chapter 1. But uh, the way we're going to break this up from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 30, uh, kind of outlines like this. We already said that the theme, the main theme we're going to follow through this book is joy. And so we have three big points of joy here in just verses 12 through 18 of chapter 1. The first of which is uh, joy in the advance of the gospel. And Paul's going to talk here about his imprisonment. He's going to talk about the good things that have come out of his imprisonment. And you can look in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And when he says, what has happened to me, he's talking about his imprisonment. So he says, what's happened, my imprisonment is really for the um, advance of the message of Christ. Christ is being preached through this, and he explains how. In verse 13, it's become known through the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So just by Paul being under house arrest, he has got, um, he's had an audience with the people that are um, in the imperial guard, or some translations say the praetorian guard, which we covered last week. Unusual opportunities that he's now seeing as as actual blessings that you know in the beginning didn't seem right and I'm sure we got a lot to say about that in the application section. Mhm. Oh yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff in here. We're going to go through it quickly for the sake of just reading the text. Um so he's got the Praetorian guard that has learned about it by him being imprisoned under house arrest. Everybody knows that Paul is there for Christ. So now they know about Christ. Um, and then look in verse 14. It says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So another way the gospel is advanced is that Paul's imprisonment has inspired courage to the local Christians there in Rome. And so now they're going out and preaching. They're more, I guess, uh, courageous to go out and to proclaim the gospel, encouraged by the fact that, hey, Paul is imprisoned. Paul can handle it. Paul can maintain his faith while in prison. He's still preaching under house arrest. If Paul can preach under house arrest, I can preach in yeah. my freedom. The way the way I look at that, and I may be reading it wrong, is that they're, they're saying, well, we can see the worst that could happen in Paul, and it doesn't look that bad. Mm-hmm. Or he's not making it look that bad. I, th- I think that it probably was pretty bad, but... The way he's handling that through faith that has given them a lot of courage, mm-hmm. so yeah. that they are able to go forward even more with even more confidence. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what we're looking at here. And then you get into verses fifteen and eighteen. Now, here's something that's 
got a negative side of it, but Paul is still spinning it in a positive light, much like with what he's doing with his entire situation being under house arrest. But in verse 15, he says, Some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Verse 16, The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So Paul, there are some men that are, just for one reason or another, we'll talk more about this in the next section where we think about the text, but there are men, either way, that are going out preaching to Paul's detriment. They're trying to make Paul mad. They're trying to make him feel bad for somehow. Uh, and we'll talk about how they're planning on doing that by preaching Christ. But Paul says, you know, even if they're doing this in pretense, people are learning about Christ. And in that I rejoice. So Paul, these are the reasons that Paul finds joy in his imprisonment for the advance of the gospel. He's saying that being in prison is serving to get the message of Christ out there uh, in a great way. And so in verses 19 to 27, we're going to see uh, joy in deliverance. And you look in verse 19, look what he says. Uh, or to finish off verse 18, he says, Yes, and I will rejoice. Verse 19, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And so Paul here, he's going to be talking about the deliverance that he's going to have and, um, you know, there's some debate here we can cover in the next section on whether he's talking about a physical deliverance from Nero or a spiritual deliverance in salvation, regardless of what his verdict is from Nero. Uh, but you can see uh, Paul's eager expectation in verse 20. He says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And then you have the famous verse that everyone knows, verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And so Paul, is he has this joy in the deliverance that he's going to have. He has the eager expectation of what waits on him. And he's saying here that, Whatever happens, he knows that he's not going to be ashamed because Christ is going to be honored, whether by life or by death. And it's in that context that you find to live is Christ and to die is gain. Um, and then in verses 24 to 26, he's going to talk about um, remaining is necessary. Excuse me, look in verse 24. He says, But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So Paul is talking to live as Christ, to die as gain. I'm hard-pressed between the two, but to remain is necessary, so that's what I'm going to do. We can look some more into the implications of that and kind of the meanings and the thoughts behind it in our next section, because there's a lot of stuff to, to delve into there. But just for the sake of outlining, that's what Paul says. And then finally, in the last four verses here, 27 to 30, we find Paul's joy in the conflict. And you can see him talking about the conflict there in verse uh, 30. If you're riding down the road and listening to your car, Paul's mentioning a conflict down in verse, 20, or verse 30. But starting verse 29, Paul says, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, 
you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. So Paul is counting them. Uh, we already talked about how they are partakers with him in the gospel. You look in chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul says that they have a partnership with him in the gospel. A fellowship, that's that same word uh, in the Greek koinonia that you hear for fellowship. They're working together, and Paul recognizes that. And um, he encourages them in verse 27. I want to back up. Verse 29 and 30 kind of gives you the idea of that little chunk of scripture there. But if you back up to verse 27, Paul encourages them by saying, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so Paul encourages them by telling them to, to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. And now he's shifting the focus from himself and his current situation over to the situation of the Philippians. And it's going to stay, the focus will stay on the Philippians for the rest of the letter, really. He's gotten his personal stuff out of the way to start with, and now he's going to move into shining the light on the Philippians. And he starts off by telling them, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Yeah, so that's that's really a major um, break in the text at 127. Because mm-hmm. that's, that's the first time he does. I haven't thought about that before, but that's the first time that he kind of gets into instructions for them. But it still has to do with the overall theme that we're doing today, joy and conflict, because he's, he's talking about his absence from them. Mm-hmm. So it fits in. The conflict here is his imprisonment. Yeah. And just to go back over those points, you did that really well. Uh, there were three main points in there to sum up the reading. First of all, it was that Paul's joy in conflict is described as a joy in the advance of the gospel. But the advance of the gospel is in his absence, you know, or mm-hmm. through his imprisonment in one way and in his absence through these uh, rival preachers. Yeah. And then the second part was his joy in deliverance. And like you said, we'll talk about the nature of that deliverance in a minute. And then finally, his joy in conflict as we get back to the idea of you know, the affliction that he's suffering. So, you know, it's a really interesting theme that uh, is going to have a lot of applications for us when we get into the next uh, parts of the podcast. Our text for today is loaded with so many things that uh, provoke thought and definitely application to our lives today. Philippians, all through the book, everything, you can take each one of these verses and really you know, have a whole class on them pretty much because there's so much stuff in them. Yeah. Um, but we'll just start with right here in the beginning of our section for today in verse 13. Uh, Paul's talking about the whole Imperial Guard. We talked a little bit about them in our last episode on Philippians and our first episode. We kind of mentioned them and described them a little bit, but just for a little more info so you can understand the conditions of Paul's house arrest, the Imperial Guard, or as your translation probably says, the Praetorian Guard, um, 
They're exactly what they sound like. They're the guard of the emperor themselves. Imperial guard definitely implies that they are going to be guarding the ruler, whoever it is. And that's what they were supposed to do. They were the finest soldiers in the Roman army. They were made up of 10,000 hand-picked Italian troops. They were given a rank equal, equal to that of centurion. Their job was mainly to serve as the personal bodyguard of the emperor, kind of like a secret service of Rome. Uh, they were given double the amount of pay of a normal soldier, and they had their own living quarters in Rome. They were given their own living quarters in Rome. They could retire after 12 to 16 years, and they would get a lot of land and money from Caesar himself. So Caesar took care of his bodyguards when they, um, if they lived to retire. And uh, it's interesting because Paul is probably placed under their care, not because he is like, you know, in class we talked about it and we said it's probably not because Paul's like a James Bond type character mm-hmm. that is, you yeah. know, you put him under arrest and he's going to bust out, so you got to put him under the best guards you have. It's when we were talking in the break. It's most likely that you know Paul was put under their care to keep him safe because everybody there are a lot of people that want to kill Paul, especially well, I don't know, especially in Rome, but you've got especially the Jews. That are wanting to kill him, um, and a lot of people that he's just upset along the way. For example, like when he was in Ephesus and um, disrupted the people there, uh, disrupting their sale of their sale of those little Artemis dolls or Diana figurines or whatever they were. And uh, also when he was in Philippi, he caused a problem, a big riot because he. Uh, cast the demon out of this girl. These guys were making money, so a lot of people are Thessalonica. Mad at Paul. He could only stay there three weeks. Yeah, uh, everywhere he went, he was almost stoned to death. Or he's beaten. I mean, you can look at the list in Second Corinthians chapter eleven at all the times he was imprisoned and almost died. And so yeah, those those guards were probably there as a service to him more so than a threat to him. Uh, because he was a obedient citizen. I mean, he was mm-hmm. using... Uh, who was it that said it was either Herod or Festus who said, you know, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, he would have been released. And, um, you know, back when he was in Caesarea. So, mm-hmm. you know, he was, he was there on it because of his appeal. Mm-hmm. And he was using this um, to further the gospel and take it to Rome. And, um, you know, so, yeah, I agree that these guys are like that. And we we talked about, you know, the nature of these guards last time we were discussing the nature of the imprisonment. Was it a Caesarean or an Ephesian or Roman imprisonment? And uh, some translators prefer praetorium, whereas we have praetorian guard or imperial guard. And I, I think that the imperial guard that you described is the correct translation here and, and that he was probably chained to these guys night and day. Yeah. Um, and seems like he may have even been able to uh, convince some of them that Jesus is the Son of God and converted them to Christ. Yeah, it's I think amazing. that's exactly what he's saying. You know, he says this is really for the advance of the gospel because Paul has a soldier chained to him all day. And it's not the same soldier all day. They would Their shifts ran out every six hours. So every six hours, Paul got a new guard chained to him. 
And that whole time, that guard's having to listen to Paul teach people, preach to people, you know, because we saw from the end of Acts, people are coming to Paul, and Paul's teaching them freely. Dictating this letter. Yeah. You know, if the theory we worked on before that Timothy was a secretary of some kind, you know, he's mentioned in the, the opening of this letter, then they heard every word of the letters that he was dictating out, and Yep. You know, he probably wrote more letters than what we have preserved for us in the uh, New Testament canon. So, you know, they heard it all kinds of ways. And not to mention, Paul wasn't past turning right to a guard and speaking him to him directly about yeah. faith. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure he did that. Yeah, I'm sure almost all of this guard's got a heavy dose of, you know, Paul asking He's, them or, you know, whatever... However, Paul uh, these, brought it up. He was, these guys, though, were vicious guys. I mean, they were mm-hmm. trained. Roman training, they were trained to um, to be hardened. Uh, their hearts were as hard as diamonds. And they, you know, could crucify a person without feeling a thing. Mm-hmm. They were machines. Um, but he seems to have gotten to some of them. You know, yeah. just kind of restores your faith in humanity a little bit that somebody could be brainwashed to the degree of an imperial guard and still be touched by the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to move on to another thing? Yeah, uh, you've got some stuff on the the other preachers. Well, I want, right? Yeah, I want to talk about these rival preachers because that's really interesting to me and it's a phenomenon that hasn't really gone away, unfortunately. Yeah. But um, And some of what I say may go into application here, but... I think it starts out by looking at some of the culture of those days. Uh, First of all, preachers were paid. And this is very clear here that, you know, that's why Paul has rivals is because it was um, a lucrative thing for them to be rivals. If they couldn't make any money and feed their bellies through it, then they would not be doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, that once they got Paul in prison, that... You know, their motives would be settled if it was simply ideology. But they were interested in, in making some money off of his his loss. Uh, he even refers to these kinds of people in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, as peddlers of God's word. It's not as clear here that money is a motive, but you can really see it there. And you can go to some of the qualifications for elders and one of the things is they're not to be in in it for filthy gain, you know, mm-hmm. or greed. So we know that religious teachers of all stripes were paid, and in some cases paid handsomely for teaching whatever. Uh, this became a problem because in Second Timothy chapter four, verse two and following, he says that you know teachers are are telling people what they want to hear. Uh, you know, they they're. they're People have itching ears, and the teachers are teaching them, you know, what just what they want to hear. Why would they do that? For the money. Yeah. And so I think that's one of the things that's going on here. But in in addition to that, you have the Judaizing teachers yeah. who claim that Paul. You remember what got him in prison in the first place was the charge recorded in Acts twenty three that he's preaching against the temple, that he's mm-hmm. preaching against the law, that he's preaching against the Jewish people. Yeah. So, these folks have followed him around. They've been a thorn in his side, and they have been rivaling him. But I don't really—I'm not so sure that it's that kind of 
preacher that he's talking about in Philippians because he's okay with their doctrine. Mm-hmm. He's okay with his, their doctrine. He says, you know, I'm in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yeah, so they're preaching the right thing. So that kind of takes the Judaizing teachers off the table and makes you go back to the, these guys are just, you know, I'm better than Paul. So it's, Mm -hmm. what, arrogance, conceit, and money that seems to be driving them. Not a heart for the gospel. They like the big crowds. They like to be known as the most eloquent preachers. Yeah. And I love that Paul is okay with that. You know, (laughs) this is the least insecure man I've read or known in any way. And preachers, and we'll just, you know, admit to it, preachers deal with a lot of insecurities these days. I'm getting into application now, but I see it all the time. You know, uh, my, you know, my book's out. No, read my book. Um, You know, here, here's my blog, you know, read my blog and here's my um, podcast, podcast, (laughs) you know, listen to my podcast and, you know, we're kind of. We talk about that when when we're not doing the podcast, you know, why are we doing this? Are we, mm-hmm. you know, just trying to get people to listen? And I think the statistics show, if you look at our numbers, that we're not doing this for the for the listens because we're not yeah. getting many of them and we're still doing yeah, it. Yeah, we but, just stopped a couple months ago, I think. Yeah, but, uh, you know, preachers really get into this. It's something, you know, we should aspire to be like Paul who says, you know, even if I'm in prison... And these other guys are getting huge crowds listening to their sermons. I'm okay with that as long as Christ is being preached. I've mm-hmm. won because Christ winning is me winning. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not in it to to make a name for myself. I'm in it mm-hmm. to make Christ's name glorified above all names. And we get that attitude, we can be the kind of preachers we need to be. Yeah, I think that's exactly what's at the heart of Paul's attitude here. I mean, certainly he's not condoning them doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Now, obviously he's still, you know, later in Philippians he's going to talk about maybe these guys. He talks about people's people whose God is their belly and their end yeah. is their destruction. Could be referring back to these guys, but, you know, I think it's um, in Kaufman he quotes a guy, D.A. Hayes, saying that Paul's statement in verse 18, which the statement is, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. D.A. Hayes says that statement is one of the most noble utterances from one of the greatest men. So it's that idea of, you know, if I win, or if Christ wins, I win. I don't care if these guys are getting the money that I was getting, if they're getting the recognition around the community that I was getting. I don't care if people are coming to Christ, whether it's from these guys' pretense or whether they're doing it in truth. As long as Christ is being proclaimed, I'm fine with it. And then to verse 21 just adds to that. Well, wait a second. You're moving on? No, 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 I'm just, I'm not moving on. I'm just using this as a point. All right, because I I got a couple more on that. (laughs) I'm not done with my rant. Oh, yeah, I'm not done either. Okay. But I think it just adds... You just can see into the, his thought process here and his mm-hmm. logic of why he is finding joy in the conflict. Because yeah. the joy, he's getting his joy out of the conflict because the conflict is producing, uh, I guess, a making, better opportunity for Christ. Yeah, it's making a way for Christ to win. Yeah. And if that's. Paul, Paul is losing, Christ is winning. 
And that's his whole thing. That's what I'm in it for. Yeah, and it it reminds me of John in John 3 saying, you know, I must decrease and he must increase. Yeah. Yeah. It's the exact same attitude. Yeah, that you and we see need that. We need it. It's so yeah. hard. I, you know, that those words that he uttered are so hard to utter truthfully for preaching preachers, and and I'm sure for anybody else uh, who is in a, a field where you're put out in front of people. You know, I remember one time I was in class at, at Fried Hardeman, and um, it was one of David Light's classes, and one of the, you know, in, in preacher, whenever you're learning to be a preacher or you're in Bible school or whatever, you really have these competitive tendencies. I don't know what it is. Um, you just have it. And one of the students asked Dr. Light, Dr. Light, who is the greatest preacher in the brotherhood? And I'm sure he thought that was the dumbest question. He didn't say that he thought it was a dumb question, but... <laughs> You know, it was like wanting him to name the greatest preacher in the brotherhood. Now, you think about where a question like that comes from. Of course, it was uttered by a kid. No, I'm going to be judgmental towards I don't remember who's, no. who said it. It doesn't matter. I'm sure he's different now. Um, and I was one that really wanted to hear his answer on that. Mm-hmm. And he gave a great answer. He goes, okay, he said, uh, the greatest preacher in the brotherhood is some guy in Wyoming that you've never heard of that preaches to a group of about 15 people. In a town of about 5,000 people. That's the greatest preacher in the brotherhood. And he was right. He's like, it's, you know, the guy that's in it for Christ and yeah. not for his name, that's the greatest preacher in the brotherhood. He doesn't have a name. He doesn't have a name. He doesn't have a, you know, a blog. He doesn't have this or that. Yeah. He's just some guy that doesn't mind not being known as long as Christ is known. Um, and another thing I was going to say is, this is a question I ask myself, having done blogs, having written books, having done podcasts, here's a question I ask myself, am I reading other people's blogs? Am I reading other people's books? Mm-hmm. Am I listening to other people's podcasts? Am I going and listening to other people preach? Am I, you know, do I, do I go to a lectureship and just do the you know the part that I was invited to speak at and then turn around and go back home mm-hmm. you know am I encouraging my preaching brethren by making them increase and myself decrease I, I think that that's the way Paul was he wrote he preached he reached bigger audiences than anybody but if Timothy was preaching he was there wanting to hear him preach yeah if Apollos was giving a speech somewhere, Paul was going to be in the audience cheering him on. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is really a very important thing to do away with the rivalry. And later in this letter, Mm -hmm. just a few verses later, it said, do nothing through rivalry or conceit. And you got to think that he's thinking about these preachers. But he's not judging, he's he's not judging them, and he's not trying to get one up on them by saying that. He just knows it destroys you as a person mm-hmm. because you're never the best. Yeah. There's no one who is the best mm-hmm. at all. I think and that's exactly... I, I, we could talk about this all day. Yeah, it's just what really, you know, because of what we're in, yeah. I think. There's so much behind this. I remember Don Myers at Faulkner told a story about 
for we're talking about leadership in the church, and he told a story about this preacher who came forward at a meeting that Don Myers was doing. The guy came down, and he just, or I don't know if he came forward or talking to him afterward, but either way, he comes to Don Myers telling him this, and he's just crying, you know, won't lift his head up from the ground, and he says that he struggles with this exact thing, that he was struggling with preaching for the wrong reasons just wanting mm-hmm. he said it was so bad to where he would hope that nobody came forward after someone else's sermon like when a preacher came to visit oh man he would hope that no one came forward because mm-hmm. you know if people come forward their sermon's better than his and he would hope that nobody would come forward and that's you know we talk about this like it's a distant thing but that and Don that, Myers yeah, will talk about that man it's and well and say that that man is a great man, a great preacher, yeah. you know, through and through. But that's a struggle for some guys, mm-hmm. you know. And for him, that's kind of the mindset I picture that these guys have. And it's probably for money, too. You know, that word, uh, they preach it out of selfish ambition. It could be selfish yeah. gain. We, it's probably yeah, money, too. Leaned, yeah, probably leaned on money too much there. It may have just been... Yeah. I, I think it's. Yeah. I think it's probably both. I think for some guys, they're trying to just get Paul's support that he had for some churches in Rome. You know, maybe Paul's out of the picture now. He's in prison. These guys forget about him. If I'm here, but you know, I think a lot of them. It was, you know, they were just wanting to do it because well, Paul's in prison. Everybody's going to kind of forget about him, and now I can be the new favorite. You know, I now I can be the greatest one. I can be the, isn't the phrase super apostle? Yeah. Now that I can Paul, be the super Paul apostle. Coyne, you know, yeah, some of these guys are super apostles. That's the Second Corinthians 11. Second Corinthians, okay. Or, or somewhere in there. Um, yeah, Second Corinthians 11, 5. I am not, I love Paul's sarcasm too. Mm-hmm. I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. You know, that's yeah. maybe the best name for these guys. And uh, we've all been guilty of it. But, um, you know, we got to move on to other things. But uh, that is something that's very important for preachers to, to look at. Uh, what else? Uh, let's talk about his expectations of deliverance, the way you yeah. put it, and what kind of deliverance he was expecting. Yeah, because in verse 19 he says, um, I know through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, and you'll notice that the Spirit's probably capitalized in your translation, referring to... Probably the Holy Spirit here. Um, at least the translators of the English Standard Version thought as much. But um, he says that this will work out for my deliverance. And then he starts talking about to live as Christ, to die as gain. You look in verse 22, which we skipped over. 22 and 23, we skipped over in the reading. But he says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. It it, it looks like there's no debate here to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I've heard a lot of debates over whether he made it out of this imprisonment. But he says he's convinced of it, yeah. that he's going to be released and have fruitful labor. I don't think he's talking about deliverance in terms of deliverance from sin or some spiritual deliverance. Yeah. I think he's 
thinking that he's going to get out. And again, I go back to the comment made by Herod and I, I'm embarrassed. I don't know if Festus or Felix, but it one was, of those guys. You know, he he would have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. It was Agrippa so. saying it to Festus. I looked okay. it up a minute it ago was, when you mentioned it. Okay, it was Herod. Okay, yeah. So, um, you know, he's convinced of it. He's going to. It's fruitful labor. That's. But you know, he's looking at. It, he says it's a win-win situation. If I die, I win. If I stay, mm. I win. That's a pretty good position to be in, as as he looks at it. Oh yeah, and I, I think he's talking about his deliverance from prison, because in verse twenty six he says, um, you know, he's saying, "Convinced of this, I'll remain and continue for you, for your progress and joy, so that in me you may have ample cause of glory in Christ Jesus, because of my coming to you again." Yeah, Paul yeah. is planning to come to Philippi again at this point. He's convinced that he is going to be there again. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on and said, well, I want you to live worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, you know, he's saying, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm coming back. I want you to live worthy of the gospel of Christ that whether I'm there or not. Yeah. You know, he says, but I am going to come back. I'm convinced I'm going to be there because, you know, to die, if this imprisonment ends up with me being killed right now, it's fine because to die is gain. Mm-hmm. But for me to live is more fruitful labor, is what he says. He's going to keep on doing what he's been doing. It's necessary for him to stay on the account of the Philippians. And here you have more of Paul's selflessness. A minute ago we saw his selflessness for the sake, you know, his own uh, pride was hurt. And his own, I guess, financial gain was hurt um, for the sake of Christ. And he's fine with it as long as Christ is glorified. And here... He's saying it would be far better to be with Christ. But for your sake, it's necessary that I stay and help you guys out. And he says, um, you know, convinced of this, I know, or look in verse 24. To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He says it's not more necessary on my account. This is what, you know, has to be done for me so that I can enjoy the best possible situation that I can have. Because he says in verse 23, to depart and be with Christ is far better. He says, but I need to remain because it's necessary for you. So I'm going to remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So Paul is staying because I think he recognizes here that his work's not finished. He's got some more work to do with the Philippians and probably with everybody else that he's been preaching to, you know, from... Start of his missionary journeys. Uh, let's do this. Uh, most people read it this way: that um, there are five prison epistles. The first four were from this time period: Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Those four were written from a Roman imprisonment in the days of uh, the early years of Nero. Mm-hmm. Okay, am I right so far? Yeah. The final one is 2 Timothy. And the difference between what you've got in this one and 2 Timothy is in 2 Timothy he says, you know, I'm being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. 2 Timothy mm-hmm. 4, 6. So uh, you can see an expectation of death. There's no doubt in his mind that he's going to get the death penalty and he was beheaded, according to tradition, 
soon after that letter was written. Second Timothy is his final letter. It reads that way. It's very dark, you know, in terms of uh, the circumstances that he is in. It's full of hope. But, um, you know, there are five prison epistles. The first four are contained in this time frame that we're reading about in Philippians. There's hope of release, no hope of release in Second Timothy chapter 4. Um, yeah. Let's We're way over time on this section, but I want to get to this interesting Greek word in uh, chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, the word is translated a variety of ways. I think uh, one translation has conduct, conduct yourselves or conduct your, let your conduct be. Mm-hmm. And uh, the translation we're working from is let your manner of life be. Uh, that is one word in the Greek. The word is polytueste. Mm-hmm. Did I say that right? Poly is uh, related to politeis, which has to do with citizens, and polis, which has to do with city. A metropolis, yeah. for example, uh, mm-hmm. is where that word comes from. So it has to do with citizens, and he's talking here about citizenship. Uh, not citizenship of Rome, but citizenship of heaven. He'll return to that in chapter 3, verse 20. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony, and they were very proud of their citizenship. Roman Mm -hmm. citizens had special privileges. Others did not have. So he's making a play on that. And he's saying, I want your citizenship to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let it be worthy of the ethics of Christianity. Don't worry about your citizenship being worthy of Rome. That's not as big a deal as Christ. Mm -hmm. One more thing. The King James has a horrible translation here. And Mm. and it's not so much because of the original translator's negligence or competence. They were very competent, brilliant men. But language has changed over the last 400 years. And uh, a lot of people are familiar with that old translation, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Well, conversation back in 1611 meant your whole way of life, your conduct and everything, and now it just has to do with your speech. Yeah. So I've heard that verse used to talk to people about the way they talk. You know, Philippians 1.27 says, let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Well, they're, yeah. they're misusing that. He's... It includes your speech, but it has to do with all of your conduct. And uh, it's a very interesting play on words. It's lost in all the English translations because, really, he's talking about citizenship playing on the Philippians' pride in the Roman citizenship. Yeah, as we covered in that last episode and talking about their background, you know, Romans are very proud of being Romans. They wear Roman clothes. They speak the Latin language. They enjoy Roman entertainment. All this stuff is wrapped up in their citizenship. And so to be a Roman citizen, you know, it's the same way with a lot of Americans. You know, very proud in their American citizenship to play on, say, you know, act like a citizen of Christ's kingdom. Mm -hmm. You know, as much as, you know, they would have put stock in their Roman citizenship, you know, down to, like you said, the way they talk, the language they spoke. You know, all these different things, their dress, all this was wrapped up in their citizenship. And so he said, I want you to live like that. Mm -hmm. I want you to, your manner of life needs to be wrapped up in that. And there's uh, one more thing I'll mention real quick. 
uh, right there in verse 27, the very first word kind of uh, adds to this, that word only. Um, it carries, here, it carries a significant amount of weight. Um, Roper, in his True for Today commentary, quotes a guy, Alec Motier, Motier, I don't know how to say his name, uh, but he says, the force of the word only is tremendous. As if Paul had said, this thing, this one thing, and this thing only. Nothing else must distract or excuse them from this great objective. It must be their all-embracing occupation. So, kind of like, you know, it says, only this, you know, but it's really, and we kind of read that and just think, only do this. But it's really wrapped up in only focus on this. You know, only be a citizen of Christ. You know, and that's definitely a play on don't be a citizen of Rome, only be a citizen of Christ. Put all your energy into having a manner worthy, you know, or as King James, a conversation. But either way, your entire, you know, be a citizen. Focus on being a citizen of Christ and that and that alone. That way, if I come to you, you know, you're doing what's right. I think that's really the driving force behind that whole little section there, which is what's Let's go back up to verse 12 and get an application here that I think will work for everybody. If not now, it will work for you in the future, I promise. Uh, Paul is talking about his imprisonment. He's being chained to these guards, and he says, What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Here's the lesson. Find meaning in your suffering. Don't look at affliction as meaningless and purposeless. Don't look at the whole world as you know, something that makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, that's what the atheistic world wants to tell you, that the world has no meaning, that everything's mm-hmm. just chance, accident. And this isn't exactly everything happens for a reason. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah. But find purpose in your su- suffering. Yeah. And uh, Paul here has is, is found that. You know, there is a reason for me to be here. I'm not just wasting my time. Um, I haven't, you know, worked so hard for nothing, but being in prison is actually taking me a step further that I couldn't have taken outside of prison. So this is a good thing. It's not, and, and it's a great, healthy perspective on suffering because I hate when people pretend that everything's okay when it's not okay. He's not saying, yeah, you know, the food here is really good. Ha, ha, ha. You know, uh, you know, prison's not so bad. Um, hey, it's yeah. great. You know, I'm sure Paul was very realistic. I, there, There's a passage where he said, um, you were, we were, he, he says something like, we were burdened beyond what we could endure. You know, one time when he was yeah, writing. Yeah, that's at the beginning of 2 Corinthians. Okay, that's where it is. Yeah, he says, burdened, so utterly burdened. Uh, I mean, beyond that's really our, heavy language. Yeah, it's in verse 8. Beyond our strength. Yeah. We despaired beyond, of life itself. Yeah, so he's not a pie in the sky, everything's always okay <laughs> type guy. 
I, you know, and, and I like that because I hate it when people think that's what Christianity is all about, denying reality. That's not what he's doing. What he's saying is this very difficult affliction that I'm going through has meaning, and I can find joy in my sufferings because there is meaning in this suffering. Yeah. Now, there, there's a lot to talk about here. Let's talk about verse 22. Okay, for me to live, if I'm to live in the, I'm at verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Mm-hmm. All right, he's still another passage on suffering and now he's thinking about the release from the suffering and the death as gain. And that's troubling to some people because they think, was Paul considering suicide here? Mm-hmm. Well, no. We don't have any example of apostles or inspired men or workers in the early church, any example from early church history where Christians committed suicide. Mm-hmm. That, that wasn't, that's, that's contrary to Christian teaching and to the view of sanctity of life and all of that. So he's not contemplating suicide. He's not saying, you know, I gain everything by just uh, ending it all right here. He's thinking about the the further blessings, the eternal weight of glory that that awaits him beyond this world. And he's thinking about the things that he talks about in Romans eight eighteen when he says, uh, "You know, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us." Mm-hmm. You know, the glory beyond is so much greater; it can't be compared with what's happening right now. Yeah. And what's happening right now will be forgotten very quickly once death occurs. Uh, I want to contrast that with uh, one of the early church fathers. This is a second century guy. He's almost uh, contemporary with Paul. Uh, his name is Ignatius. Ignatius. He was bishop of Antioch in Syria. Ignatius uh, was. He died in 110. You think about how close that was. Paul's death is what 64, 65, something mm-hmm. somewhere around there. And uh, so, 40, 50 years between the death date of Paul and the death date of Ignatius. Paul died prematurely. Ignatius may have lived a long life. Of course, he was put to death also. But, um, you know, it's interesting to think how close this man was to Paul. If he had never met Paul, he certainly could have met people who knew Paul. Because he was an elder or a bishop of the church that sent Paul and Barnabas out on their first missionary journey. Yeah. This is the Antioch of Acts chapter 13. Um, you know, so this is the Antioch they went back to and reported all the blessings to. There, were, I'm sure people who remembered Paul and Barnabas at the church that Ignatius led. Now, Ignatius was arrested by Rome um, for preaching the gospel, and while he was on his way to Rome... To be executed, he was writing letters. He expected his execution to take the form of death in the Colosseum by being eaten by lions. And as he's talking about that and anticipating, here's how he writes. And I'm just reading this as a contrast, or maybe, I want to see what you think, Andrew. Maybe you think it's a comparison Mm -hmm. to Paul's statement, to die is gain. All right, here's what he says. I'm writing to all the churches, and I am insisting to everyone that I die for God of my own free will, unless you hinder me. I implore you, do not be unseasonably kind to me. 
Let me be food for the wild beasts through whom I can reach God. I am God's wheat, and I am being ground by the teeth of the wild beasts, that I may prove to be pure bread. Better yet, coax the wild beasts, that they may become my tomb and leave nothing of my body behind, lest I become a burden to someone once I have fallen asleep. Then I will truly be a disciple of Jesus Christ when the world will no longer see my body. Hmm. What do you think about that? I mean, he's saying, he says, don't be unseasonably kind to me. He's writing to the church at Rome. This is the letter to the Romans. Mm -hmm. They probably have some power over there to try to get him off the hook, get him released. And uh, he's saying, don't, don't be unkind. Let me do this. I want to die. And he's fantasizing about his body being ground in the lion's teeth. And then he has this weird fantasy about, you know, the the lion's body being a tomb for his body so that he's not a burden to anybody who might have to bury him. Yeah. My question is, is this the same attitude we're reading in Paul when he says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain? Hmm. I think uh, you know how I feel about it. I, You know, it's hard yeah. for me to hide. I, I think there's a huge difference. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I think Ignatius was was wrong. You know, Paul is saying, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. You know, this is yeah. this would be good for me to stick around. And Ignatius is saying, please, please, don't get me off the hook. I want to, I want to die a martyr's death. Yeah. And it's it's getting close to some of those suicide bombers that we see. Yeah. In Islam today, yeah, over I in think, the Middle East. I think Paul's approach is much more kind of from the standpoint of you know whatever happens is going to happen for Christ with this whole you know regardless of the situation Christ is going to be glorified Paul's not trying to you know with Ignatius I think it sounds more like I want this to happen you know Mm -hmm. this is what needs to happen here with Paul I don't think Paul's like excited he doesn't write in here you know, I'm trying to get Nero to kill me. You know, he doesn't write that. He says, you know, if I'm if I die, I go to Christ. If I don't, then I can stay here and work with you guys. I think Paul is a master of finding, like you said earlier, finding the good in a bad situation. He's not lying, saying everything is fine. He's simply looking for the good coming out of the situation it reminds me of a coach a basketball coach in high school used to tell us all the time life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond to it kind of you know it's 90% attitude 10% circumstance and I think that's the truth for Paul you put Paul in any circumstance which we'll talk about at the end of Philippians he's going to say he knows how to abound you know he knows how to be content in any circumstance I think that's what we're looking at here with Paul. You know, he's, whether I'm in prison, if Paul's in prison, he's going to find, he, he, is, he has found here, you know, the advance of the gospel. He can see it. He's not so blinded by his terrible situation that he cannot see, you know, the good coming from it. And he's not just trying to lie and say, you know, well, at least I have a bed and, and this. He's not, you know, he's not lying he still calls it a conflict. He still looks at being in prison as, you know, prison's not a positive thing. 
But because people are hearing about Christ, it is. Mm-hmm. Prison by itself is not positive. But in this situation, I've seen the advance of the gospel. I've seen the uh, encouragement of my brothers. I've seen all these guards learn about Christ. I've seen some of these guys are preaching for the wrong reasons, but they're still preaching the right things. And so I'm going to rejoice in that. And I think Paul, when he's talking about his release, it's definitely you know, another situation that Paul is seeing Christ in. You know, if I'm yeah. here, Christ is in me. If I'm gone, I'm with Christ. I see a correlation to the Christian notion of peace, which mm-hmm. which is has come over from the Jewish notion of peace, which is shalom. It's not just an absence of conflict, but wholeness and flourishing in every dimension of life, no matter where you are in life. And I see Paul as feeling complete, this is where the peace comes in. He feels complete if he's living in prison. He feels complete and whole if he's released from prison. He feels complete and whole if he dies. Yeah. I mean, if we can get to that point, and only Christ can do that for us, uh, he is our peace. If if we can get to that that point, having him as our peace then we don't fear anything. We suffer. We suffer. We don't fear. We don't invite trouble either. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just, there's a big difference between inviting the trouble and being able to be at peace in trouble. And Ignatius, he crosses the line inviting trouble and, and, you know, wanting a martyr's death. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, maybe he saw the notoriety. I hate to judge motives because he certainly did far more, you know, um, he was far bolder than I would ever be. But, um, you know, I just, I don't, I don't think that that's what Paul is doing. Now, the reason why that's important and the reason why we're talking about this in application is because of verse 29. It has been granted to you. That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, that's the grace of suffering. And I bring you back to verse 12. Notice the passive phrasing of that. What has happened to me. Not what I have achieved, not what I have done, but what has happened to me. And then he says, it has been granted to you, verse 29. What has happened to me, and it has been granted to you, is the language of grace. God has given affliction as a gift to us to be used for the glory of Christ. And we can see it that way as a blessing, even though it hurts. Yeah. And it's painful, and it is a trial. And uh, so I think there's there's a lot of lessons here. We're not enumerating them, you know, really clearly, but... Uh, I think this another suffering is a grace, suffering with meaning, uh, peace in all circumstances. Yeah, and it reminds me a lot of a couple things. And he says, you know, at the end of the passage here, uh, I'm going to look. In verse 29, he says, It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he's talking about the thorn in his flesh. You know, and he prays three times. Yeah, yeah. And in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 12, he says, My grace is sufficient for you, 
for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says this, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So there you have that same phrase, for the sake of Christ. And it's the same idea. You know, if it's for the sake of Christ, I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, calamity. It's fine if it's for the sake of Christ. Because when I'm weak, I'm strong. He's there referring to his strength that's in Christ. But I think also, you know, that strength is leading to his peace and all. You know, there's so much caught up in that idea that I think when you get over to here and you see what he's writing, you kind of see the thoughts from 2 Corinthians 12 at work. You know, you Mm -hmm. see it really living in Paul. Here he is in prison. He's fine. He's content. When you get to the end of Philippians, he's going to say that he's content. But it's this idea of, you know, the situation, like you said, the situation happened to him, and then Paul, like, happened to the situation, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul didn't let his imprisonment rule him. Paul ruled his imprisonment because yeah. of the, his attitude. And I think the application there for us is, you know, the things that come our way in life and whatever horrible things they might be um, you know I think in, I'm thinking especially the loss of a loved one you know I'm just trying to think of some of the worst things that could happen um, but you know for Paul in those kind of situations for the sake of Christ he is content not for the sake of himself or not just for the sake of letting the thing happen just so he can say look at me or look what happened it's for the sake, you know, if, if Christ is glorified, then great. Then, And I think we can apply that in our situation in life to where when something bad happens, you hear about these people, they lose a family member or something and they lose all their faith. Uh, well, if you kind of put yourself in their shoes, you might be able to see where they're coming from. But if you've got this outlook that Paul has, it's a whole attitude of faith. You know, it's whatever happens is viewed in light of faith. Someone dies, it's viewed in the light of God is real, God is watching for me. You know, it's instead of the light of, oh, well, he this person died or this horrible thing's happened, maybe God's not there. You know, it's it's not even an option because your whole attitude, your whole outlook on life, you've already set in stone. You're staying firm in the faith that my attitude is that God's there and that he's in charge. You know, he's going to he's going to guide me through this. He's going to give me peace. He's going to be there for me. And I think that's Paul's faith in God and what he understood God to be and how he understood you know, Christ would act for him. I think that's what led to his attitude in this situation, was that underlying idea of God and of Christ and what he could do, of Christ's power and his weakness. And I think that's what led to his being able to say, I'm in a horrible situation, but he doesn't whine and complain and gripe. and He just says, you know, this is for the advance of Christ. And he can mm-hmm. see it because that's his faith. He could have looked at it, and I know I'm rambling here, but he could have had the attitude and looked at it of, you know what, I've been preaching my whole life for Christ since I saw him on the road, and I've gotten nothing but pain and hardship 
you know, you read Second Corinthians chapter 11, and he talks about all the things he's had to go through. He could have said, I've had to do all this stuff. All these other guys are getting paid and are sitting up pretty. I'm in prison, and now these guys that are supposed to be helping me are going against me, trying to hurt me while I'm in prison, you know, adding mm-hmm. insult to my entry already. This isn't worth it. You know, I'm yeah. done with this. And I think that's kind of the attitude a lot of people have when they have problems. Yeah. You know, I'm done with this. Look, I've been following Christ. I've been believing in God. And this is where it's got me. I'm going to go try something else now. Yeah, he's he's a great model for us to follow in suffering. Like you said, uh, chapter 4 returns to a lot of these themes. So if you like this kind of stuff, stay tuned with us. When we get to chapter 4, we'll talk more about you know finding contentment in all circumstances, things like that. But that's all the time we've got for this episode of the 66. Uh, let us hear your feedback. You can get Andrew at akingsley at arcoc.com or me at dkaiser at arcoc.com. Our Twitter handle is the66podcast. I almost forget that every time. The66podcast. And, uh, you know, uh, follow us on Twitter and you can see when new episodes come up. Better yet, subscribe to our iTunes feed. And then you'll uh, automatically know when every new episode's coming up. We are so thankful to our listeners for listening. We know there's a lot of other things that you could be doing. We appreciate you joining us for an hour every time we do the 66 podcast. Next week, we're going to get into Philippians chapter 2.